This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This NFL season, FanDuel has more ways to win than ever before. FanDuel's got a new tool called Guru to help you pick your lineup so you can make smarter picks and feel more confident going into game day. Just start by picking any player and let Guru guide you through the rest. So if you pick a QB, Guru will use tested DFS strategies to recommend the best wide receivers and tight ends to pair with him. New players, try FanDuel today and get a $20 bonus when you make your first deposit, just sign up fanduel.com slash CBS Sports. Fanduel.com slash CBS Sports. The Michael Vick dog fighting ring was pretty wild. Hmm. I mean, you lost a $100 million contract because a guy likes to fight dogs. Um, Jerry Sandusky was sad. Larry Nass are different things. But Aaron Hernandez is the craziest story I ever covered because he shot as many as six people and killed three of them. Welcome to the Jim Rome Podcast. We are now 48 episodes into this thing, and I've got to be honest, I'm especially pumped for you to hear this conversation with Dan Wetzel. This is why I do this podcast for conversations, long-form conversations like this one. Dan is a national sports columnist for Yahoo Sports, and for my money, he is one of the absolute best in the biz. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He is a produced screenwriter. He is the author of an upcoming series of sports biographies, which will hopefully get kids back to reading books. Oh, and on top of that, he is a Bush light enthusiast. We cover a lot of ground. He explained why Urban Meyer still has his job at Ohio State. Why Aaron Hernandez is one of the strangest stories he has ever covered. And he talked about graduating from the most prestigious college in all of Detroit, the Greek Town Casino College, where Dan majored in dealing blackjack and craps. So pot up, F48 with Dan Wetzel. Get started right now. All right, Dan, so there's a number of things I really want to talk to you about, but let me first start with your thoughts on Urban Meyer and his situation at Ohio State. I mean, what do you make of how Meyer and the school dealt with the entire situation? Well, what sticks with me as we go a few days later is, is still just how um, the school's investigative report really paints a different picture than what the school was kind of talking about at its, uh, press conference and how the school very uh, very smartly, I guess PR-wise, didn't release its investigative report until after the press conference, so reporters weren't able to question anybody about the most you know obvious stuff. But if you read this investigative report, you know, it, it really calls into question what happened and, and the idea that there wasn't cover-up or that Meyer acted the right way, which the school concluded. Um, I'll give you the most, the the biggest example I can, the best example I can is in 2015, you know, the the narrative was always Urban Meyer reported everything up the line, did everything he was supposed to do. 
Um, what really happened was in 2015, the AD, Gene Smith, came to Urban Meyer and said, hey, we have a report. Zach Smith, the, the assistant coach, has been accused of domestic abuse against his wife. Now, he and Urban talked about it. Urban didn't have to go up the chain. Now, that's not his fault, but he didn't have to do anything. What Urban Meyer knew at that moment, though, was this wasn't the first time Zach Smith had been accused of, of the same crime and actually had been arrested in 2009 for the exact same thing. Now, those charges were dropped, but, I mean, look, Jim, if someone comes to you and says, hey, this guy you know, just got accused of I don't care what, and you know it's happened before, like the first thing you're going to say is, oh, you know what, Gene, uh, I never mentioned it, but this happened another time, or this is a pattern, or that's really disturbing. It's the like second second time you've been accused of this and and uh, providing that information which is extremely germane could have changed the way gene smith would have handled the investigation with it him thinking it was the first time so let's see what the police come up with uh which i don't think is that bad of an idea but urban meyer just either wasn't forthcoming with extremely pertinent information, not just that immediate time, but all the other meetings going forward, even three years later, you could either say he's not forthcoming or he's covering it up. Right, right. Dan, I was going to say, in your mind, let me just jump in. In your mind, the fact that he did not tell Gene Smith about that, did not tell him about the arrest for assaulting Courtney Smith in 09, does that not, in fact, constitute a cover-up? It's a cover-up, my my definition of it, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And the school... If you read their report, it's that, it, it never spells out the story like I just did. There's just two lines in the report that say, we have this, we, you know, I can, I can read you the exact thing, but it, we, can re, we, can, um, we only know that Gene Smith did not know about the prior arrest until 2018. It's kind of have this line buried in a, in a paragraph. And if obviously the implications of that line is, are very clear to paying attention. But they spent 38 words on it. They just basically said Gene Smith didn't know. That means Urban Meyer didn't tell him. They spent like 300 words on Zach Smith going to a strip club on a recruiting visit in Miami, which is not important at all to this, but is the kind of thing that gets attention in the media and fans and everyone gets all fired up about because of the strip job. So the way the thing is written, it's just so protective of Urban Meyer and so excuse-making because, again, that's a cover-up. He didn't report what he knew to his boss. And if anything, Gene Smith got screwed here because he didn't have the full information. Now, you know, maybe if he did, he changes it. And maybe Urban Meyer knows that. There's a bunch of stuff in there like that that really warrant further questioning. But they released the report after the press conference and everything goes. Now, it was a disastrous press conference nonetheless. But even the should he apologize to Courtney Smith or did this, this, blah, 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 is not as pertinent as that very question. And that little bit has not been answered and probably never will be by Urban Meyer of the school. And that's the thing that sticks with me is, man, this is, you, you can say you didn't cover it up, but 
it says he covered it up. You know, I think so. I agree with you. And as disastrous, Dan, as that press conference was, you and I both know it would have been even more disastrous if the media had the investigative report in their hands. You know, when you talk about questions that have not been answered, the very obvious question that everybody wants to know is why the hell did Urban Meyer keep Zach Smith around? Given what he did and how ordinary a coach he was, why would Meyer risk keeping this degenerate around? Do you have any idea? Well, you know, the, 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 the answer that Urban gives and does make some sense is he's Earl Bruce's grandson. Earl Bruce is the coach who gave Urban his first chance. He loved Earl Bruce. He's a former Ohio State coach, legendary family in Ohio State football circles. Um, and maybe that was it. But that's a lot of chances. And, and probably what was most interesting and did come out in the report, and this is what we had been hearing all along, from people who had worked at Ohio State or do, is Zach Smith was a bad employee. And he was showing up late for meetings, and he was, uh, you know, saying he was on recruiting visits, and he wasn't. And, you know, behavior like that, when a grown-up doesn't show up for work or lies about something like that, that is indicative of something much, usually much worse going on in their life, usually some kind of substance abuse or some kind of addiction. That, that does that. Like a high school kid doesn't show up for a shift at Burger King. Okay, he's just hanging out with his buddies playing Fortnite. I get it. But when you're 30-something years old and you have a job like Ohio State and you say, yeah, I went and I'm went, i going to scout this high school recruit and you don't show up, um, you know, the, the, the warning signs are everywhere with this guy. So that remains an unanswered question. you got to take Urban Meyer's word that it's just because of Earl Bruce. But if you again, if you read this report, Urban Meyer lies about a million things in right. this report. So how do you take his word for anything? You know, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say to you, Dan. I mean, this guy literally lied at the conference media days. This guy lied repeatedly. Why would we believe anything he has to say right about now? And let me give you another one from the report that just is stunning to me. is He tells the investigators, like, you know, a couple weeks ago, that in... 2009, after the first time Zach Smith's arrest, that Courtney Smith and Zach Smith come to his office in Florida. He's coaching Florida then. Zach Smith works for him. They come to the office, and Courtney Smith tells them, they both tell them the, 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 the arrest was wrong because Courtney made up the accusation. It's inaccurate information. There was no abuse. Nothing happened. Now, this is a bombshell, if it was true. You have Courtney Smith recanting and basically acknowledging a crime of a false police report and behaving, yeah, that's, you know, that's despicable behavior, accusing someone of something like that when he didn't do it. The problem was, Courtney Smith says, I never met with Urban Meyer and my husband at the time in, in, in his office. I never went to his office. And Zach Smith, who agrees with nothing about Courtney Smith at this point, they're a very toxic relationship, says, no, he, she wasn't there. It was, all, it was just me. So Urban Meyer... I mean, these aren't just misremembered. He literally makes up a meeting that never happened and makes up a, a recanting, which would be an extremely memorable thing to have happen. This isn't like I misunderstood what she was saying. She was never there to say anything. And he's still going with that line. And now you wonder again, how much did he actually believe that happened is he just straight lying? Did he actually invent that in his mind and always thought that? How many people at Ohio State heard that story and through the years 
didn't take what she was saying seriously because they said, you know, Urban once told me she made up the whole thing. And you just get into this wild thing. That is, again, two sentences, three sentences in this report. Not like, I got tons of, like, wait, what? No, right. You know, what else we have here? That's far more interesting than whether Zach Smith went to a Miami strip club and how much money he spent or, or all the other things they have in there. And, you know, when you're lying about that, what aren't you lying about? And yeah. that's just so weird about this thing because almost none of it is, none of this really, Urban Meyer should not have a hard time avoiding this stuff. He didn't commit the crime. He's not the one getting DUI. You know, he doesn't have the trouble, personal trouble. He just can't. He's just like inventing stuff that goes on. It's just, it's such a weird uh, window into this guy and why you'd go that far and then actually think it wasn't going to be proven wrong when you say it. Yeah, I mean, listen, that that is not misremembering, right? We're talking about a brilliant guy who's on top of literally everything. What are you going to tell me next, that his meds are causing him to remember certain things but not other things? I mean, that sounds like, I mean, to your point, that's a bombshell. Like, he straight made that shit up, and that's extremely damaging. And for the investigative report, for them to keep harping upon... Well, Zach Smith went to this strip club, and he did this and that. It's the ultimate misdirection. Now, I agree with you. So, look, we know that in terms of that investigative report, Dan, they, don't, they were not looking to get to the truth. They were looking to make this thing go away or to end and find a way to keep him. Bottom line, should Urban Meyer, based on what happened here and what he did and did not say, should he have been fired? I'm going to cop out a little. Uh, I'm going to say he certainly could have, and I, I didn't think he should or could have until I saw the report. Um, should he? I don't know. I, here's what I think. I, I, I try, it's, I'm not naive. This is how the world works. If you're the top salesman at your company, you can do all sorts of crap. If you're the best programmer at a company, if you have the talent, every employer overlooks all sorts of stuff. If you're the run-of-the-mill guy, you can't show up late for work. You know? But if you're the True. star, you can. That's how the world works. And so... Urban Meyer is clearly a star. Ohio State doesn't care. They will sit there and go, we're going to babysit this guy, and we're going to do everything we can to keep him on the rails because this guy is an unbelievable football coach. And as you look at this thing, it's like systematic how I think everybody at that Ohio State Athletic Department knows what they're dealing with. I mean, they get, a, they get an open records request from the student newspaper looking for Urban Meyer's emails and text messages. Now, this is a public, he is a public figure. Everybody knows his information is publicly available. The general counsel of the university sends the, sends the thing down to four different athletic department members. Get Urban Meyer stuff, fulfill this request. It's the law. Not one of them, including the AD, Gene Smith, even bothers to begin looking for it. They just ignore it. And, you know, things like this report... Things like not releasing until after. Things like the moment the, the, the first Brett McMurphy story comes out, there's a football staffer talking to Urban Meyer, but how do, we, how do we delete your text messages? Like, there's a system in place to protect Urban Meyer from Urban Meyer's worst instincts and just keep this guy on the rails. And that's how I kind of look at it. Like, hey, we got this super talented salesman. He's bringing in huge bucks for our company. He's a disaster in other aspects of his life. What do we got to do to keep him? And I think that's what they're doing. Could they have fired him? Absolutely. But it's up to Ohio State to decide, is this all worth it? And right now, they certainly think that it's worth it.
That's exactly it. I mean, he makes them millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars a year. They were not going to let that happen. They were not going to let him go. Lots more with Dan Wetzel right after this message from Bespoke Post. Bespoke Post delivers a monthly themed box of awesome. It's full of goods to upgrade your style, your apartment, and your life. I'm talking style, grooming, cooking, drinking, or travel. Bespoke Post has got new boxes every single month that you are guaranteed to dig. And Bespoke Post lets you know which box they picked out for you on the first of every month, and then you've got five days to keep it, switch it, or skip it. I love it. I get hooked up with a box of awesome from Bespoke Post every single month. Whether you're in search of the perfect drink, a well-kept pad, or jet-setting in style, Bespoke Post helps you get there, improving your life one box at a time. Each box goes for under 50 bucks, but has more than $70 worth of unique gear waiting inside for you. To receive 20% off your first subscription box, go to boxofawesome.com. Enter the promo code ROME at checkout. Boxofawesome.com, promo code ROME, will get you 20% off your first box. Bespoke post. Theme boxes for guys that give a damn. All right, Dan, let me change up on you. Now, you have covered every kind of conceivable story in sports. You have seen and chronicled some pretty wild things over the course of your career. Have you ever seen or covered anything as bizarre and as wild as Aaron Hernandez and the life that he led? Uh, No, not with the stakes involved. Uh, The Michael Vick dogfighting ring was pretty wild. I mean, you lost a $100 million contract because a guy likes to fight dogs. It's just, just think about that story again. Right. You know, I always joke, Jim, you know how, like, when the, the the show Ballers first came out on HBO? Sure. And the NFL goes, the, 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 the depiction of our of the league is totally, you know, crazy. You can't believe these crazy storylines. You're like, really? Look at the real stories. <laughs> right. Like, did you have a serial murderer on the, in the league? Did you? Nobody would buy that. They couldn't write that in. Yeah. Um, No, Aaron Hernandez is the craziest story. Jerry Sandusky was sad. Larry Nassar, different things. But Aaron Hernandez is the craziest story I ever covered because he was involved. He was involved in. um, He 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 shot. Let's see. Two. He shot as many as six people and killed three of them. Um, is at least alleged. Now you got all sorts of legal easier, but I guess I can't slander a dead man, so I we'll go past that. Right. But this guy was either the gunman or in the car for a double homicide in the street, drive by, shoot two guys dead, shoot another guy in the car too. I actually think it's seven people he shot, killed three. Then he left, got away with it, and played an entire season for the New England Patriots as a potential double murderer, <laughs> then killed again, then shot his co-accomplice. He might have shot two guys while he was at the University of Florida. Like, the double life that he lived, you have to, you know, like people kind of look at football players like, oh, you just got to be an athlete. You know how hard it is to be an NFL player. Like, mm-hmm. you have to be dedicated. Yeah, there's discipline. There's, there, you know, it's complicated. There's a lot that goes into being a pro football player. You can't just show up and play football. He did all of that, earned the trust of Belichick and Brady and Robert Kraft, got a $40 million contract. He's got his high school girlfriend as his fiance. They got a little baby. He's got this huge mansion. He's living with financial planners and doctors. He's totally made it. And at night, he is out, not just partying, 
but gunning people down, uh, buying illegal guns and hiding it, just living a straight gangster life for no reason at all. He grew up in a middle-class home in Bristol, Connecticut, where they averaged two murders a year. He is not from, like, this gang-infested neighborhood. I've been to his childhood house. There's a white fence in front. There's a yard, a driveway. Him and his brother would play basketball. Like, totally nice, middle-class existence. And he chose to become a gangster. He chose to live that life and be with these guys. It's not like he was trying to shake his friends as a kid. And that's the craziest thing. He literally chose a life other than being the NFL star. He had it all, obviously had a million demons in his life, gave it all up with just a, a unbelievably bizarre story. And sadly, three different people uh, died because of it. You know, you're right. You hear this so much, Dan, from guys who are growing up that you can't forget where you're from and you can't leave the neighborhood completely. That's not the case here. To your point, this guy grew up middle class. He had a nice house with a nice white fence. You write that he had a basketball hoop in the garage. He had a yard that his parents made he and his brother mow in the summer. I mean, this guy had a really good life. So why choose this gangster life? I mean, why did he seek all of that out when he was living the life that really most of us would want for ourselves? Uh, you know, that's what, he, when, no matter who you talk to in, their, in, in his relationship, and I've talked to kids he grew up with, family members, his lawyers, people, you know, people who are friends with him later in life, fellow inmates. I've talked to everybody in this story. No one really knows. It's, it is the mystery of this. Was it, you know, his father passed away, and, you know, that kind of rattled him. It was the, the culture of just being able to do whatever the heck you want. It was uh, too, much, too much drugs. Uh, it, could, it could have been anything. It could have been everything. I think it's probably all of it. But whatever it was, his life just completely spiraled to the point where, uh, you know, at, at the last spring of his freedom before he killed Odin Lloyd, he had, you know, he, he, he and a guy named Alexander Bradley were involved in the double homicide in Boston. And then probably to cover his tracks or for whatever reason, he decided to shoot Alexander Bradley down in Florida. But Alexander Bradley lived. Alexander Bradley is a very, very violent uh, drug and gun dealer in Connecticut. And Alexander Bradley said, I'm going to kill you now. And so the last months of his life, as he's still a patriot, he's getting basically, he feels like he's going to get hunted down and killed or exposed for a double homicide. And then ends up killing his... (laughs) his fiance's sister's boyfriend, like his future brother-in-law, out in a field. I mean, it just goes on and on and on with the story. And you just, like, the, the levels of it are just so crazy. And, you know, people be like, wow, you know, gosh, uh, they should have seen the warning signs. Like, who could see the warning signs of a triple murderer hmm. in the locker room? Um, this is Tim Tebow's buddy. This is Tom Brady trusted him. Like, all these good people. And it just, it just... I don't know. I don't. I, hopefully, there's no story crazier than that. But for for four years there, it, I was pretty gripped by it, and it was just. And, and then he ends up committing suicide uh, to stun everybody. He's very, very deceptive guy. Like his fiance and his attorney Jose Baez were flat out stunned when he committed suicide, and clearly he had planned that out. So he was capable of incredible deception, living two lives, being two types of people like nobody else you'll ever see. And, Dan, and, and it's just crazy. Now, Dan, you, you're working on a documentary for Blackfin, and the Blackfin website references Aaron Hernandez's, quote, 
apparent suicide. I mean, he was found hanging in his cell. Is there still a question there? I mean, did he kill himself or did somebody else kill him? Do we know for a fact <laughs> what happened? No, nah, he killed himself. I don't think, I don't know what, I don't know who wrote that. Um, I, <laughs> Jose Baez, of course, was going with the apparent suicide for a while, but um, even even they and the family believe it was it was a suicide. There's just no way to to stage that and have that big of a conspiracy theory um, going on it. So now he did he did kill himself. Um, it would have required. I remember really looking into it. It would have required like the cooperation of like 17 people, including like the doctor at the hospital would have to be like, yeah, I'm going to falsify everything so that we kill Aaron Hernandez. Like why, like, for what purpose, like right. the EMTs that, that, that were called in and don't even know the guy. So he killed himself. Um, it was legit. You know, was it, I think he was sitting there saying, I'm never getting out. Um, he knew, he knew he was never, he was never really going to win the appeal on the Odin Lloyd murder. Uh, he was never going to get an appeal. The you know, web evidence in that case were overwhelming, and I mean, he, he was twenty. He went in at twenty-three, and he was going to serve life. I mean, that's you're looking at sixty years, miserable existence. Um, he knew he was never getting out. He was he was basically a burden to his family. What he didn't think was, although there's some stuff in the the suicide notes are kind of nonsense in a, in a lot of ways. Like there's always there was a story like oh his his his. He's now uh, technically innocent of the murder, and, and he's going to get his N- NFL money and all that. He's never getting his NFL money. Um, his family's not making any money off of him. The Patriots aren't just going to cut him a check. They will, they will fight to keep $3 million signing bonus. They, they basically fired him because he didn't show up for work because he was incarcerated. They'll never owe him any money. Um, it wasn't as that. I don't think at all it was that uh, uh, just specific or, or – uh, planned out i think he just sitting there saying this sucks and i'm not sitting in here for another 55 years i'm just going to end it right now mm. dan listen his attorneys as you might imagine are saying lots of things they've said lots of things and try to explain a lot of things and i frankly i've never gotten into this on my show and for a number of reasons i've never discussed this and that's his sexual orientation i bring it up here because one of his lawyers said he was quote clearly gay and it caused him an immense amount of pain growing up in an anti-gay culture and to quote his older brother's got a book coming out where the publisher says that hernandez's sexuality is addressed let me ask you i mean was he gay and even if so is it relevant to any part of this conversation or his criminal life well yeah i've always been hesitant on this because I know it's always felt like even if he's dead, like you're, what are you outing a guy? How do we know? How do you really know if someone's gay? They can say they're gay. I don't know. Um, no, no real boyfriends have stepped forward and sold their story to Dr. Phil or anything like that. There's no pictures of him with anybody and things like that. However, certainly Shayana, his fiance is very open to the idea. Jose Baez is open to it. His brother says it. So everyone they're they're, they're discussing it. Uh, he probably was. Uh, and I'm sure it did cause some, some tumult. And and it's a sad thing about acceptance of uh, of homosexuality. And sometimes like fans sometimes rail when like guy like Michael Sam comes up. What's the big deal? Well, it's a big deal in a lot of ways because it might help somebody else be comfortable with it. The, all of that said, that's not an excuse for this this lifestyle. I mean, the, the, he's out. Like I said, seven people shot, three people dead. I mean, that's just not. 
the, the behavior is there's no there's no a a equals b here. I mean, it just has nothing to do with anything. You might be struggling with it. Lots of people struggle with it. There's lots of suicides from it. There's lots of substance abuse. There's a lots of things that happen in that, obviously, and we've seen it, you know, hopefully decrease as there's been a greater acceptance of it. But the idea that a guy that somehow he explains or excuses it, I just think is insulting, uh, particularly to the victims of these crimes. I mean, so what? You were struggling with it. Um, that doesn't mean you run around like a gangster shooting up, shooting up cars shooting up people at parties, you know, shooting guys in the face, killing a guy in you know, practically your backyard. Just one doesn't have anything to do with the other. Not at all. all right, you mentioned Larry Nasser. He's the former USA Gymnastics and Michigan State team doctor, sentenced to 40 to 175 years for sexual abuse. You covered that case as well. Dan, when you were doing that, you came on our radio program and talked about it. For those who missed our conversations, what was it like to be in that courtroom and hear from the women that he assaulted? One of the most, um, you know, straight, most powerful things, emotional things I've ever ever gone through, and I was just a witness. So I, you can only imagine what the, the the girls, the women, were getting up there saying. Um, the stories were just so painful, and they just came one after another. It, it, if you if you remember that week, it started, and it was not a big deal. It was sort of a big deal. Um, there was not a ton of media there. It's a, mainly media in like the state of Michigan. And we start covering it, and they started speaking, and the stories were so profound, and it sort of grew. And it actually, they were only going to have 88 women speak at first. They, they had signed up. And then all of a sudden, another, and I can't remember what number they ended up with, but like 70 more heard it and decided they wanted to be a part of it. And by the time Allie Raceman uh, came in and really threw a, just a profoundly uh, powerful statement at, uh, and provided that um, all of a sudden then it was huge. And it, it's, it's amazing. Cause it was like, if there was only five women, it, nobody would have paid attention. It took like one voice getting loud and making the next one louder and the next one and the next one until it was a roar that the world couldn't deny and couldn't ignore anymore. And it's sad that it took a hundred and whatever it took to get in there. And it took Olympic champions for it to become such a big story. But you just heard, I mean, I'll never forget. There'd be four or five times a day you would choke up. Like someone would say something. I remember uh, literally my tears, eyes welling up in tears, talking to a mother and a daughter who he abused. She had gotten injured. Uh, I think it was, I think it was gymnastics, but it might've been like volleyball. She's 11 years old. Her hip hurts. They're going to take her to a you know physical therapy, physical doctor, something like that, and she, they get referred to Larry Nasser. They live an hour away, even maybe even more down in a Detroit suburb, and and the mom's telling me the story. I drove her. We're like, hey, how lucky is this? An Olympic doctor? Like this is crazy. I got an 11 year old uh, gymnast here. She's not not a superstar. Just a kid in tumbling classes. She's so young. She sits in the back seat, drives her there. Nasser starts abusing her, goes X number of visits. He abuses her every single time. The girl becomes extremely depressed, suicidal. Nobody knows what's going on. The mom's like, I couldn't leave her alone. We, we had to take all the knives out of the house. Like, I'd, I'd sit over her. I'd go into her room in the morning hoping she would still be breathing. Like, the whole family was wrecked on this thing. Like, and they didn't know what had happened. She's not talking. She may not even have known at all. And 
eventually it comes out in the whole thing. And you're sitting there listening to this woman, and her and the daughter's incredible now. She's uh, very open about what it's, so I don't, you know, she goes to Boston College. She ended up really uh, recovering and doing incredible. And you're just listening to this story, and as a parent, you just, like, it's just so profound how he didn't just abuse her, he ends up abusing the entire family. The dad's a wreck, the brother never got any attention, like all the stuff that goes into it, and you're just like, this is just unbelievable how much of a reign of terror this guy has put on uh, on this area of the country. And how, just, I don't know, how these parents would have done anything to be more aware of how to stop it. And there's no, there's no simple solution to how to stop it, except don't really trust anybody, including your doctor. But, you know, all of us as parents, and I know you are, Jim, it's like our first goal is to protect our children. And so I think I said on your show and, and said on some others, like, it's just guys don't talk about this stuff because why would we talk about the game? Let's talk about anything else. Um, but this is like the most important thing you can do. And so listening to these stories, I mean, you, if you had heard that, 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 that directly, like, there's no way you're listening to the story and not tearing up. At least I couldn't. And uh, I'm not hardly known as like this uh, sensitive guy, but that's just how incredible. And then it was like, okay, there's one story. Okay, now there comes the next. And it's just that. The next one's just as painful. And it's just like, this is incredible what is going on here. I mean, it, it is horrific. And what you said on my show at that time was every father should listen to the victim's statements from that trial. I mean, yeah. I mean, Dan, there were red flags for everybody to see from Michigan State to USA Gymnastics to the USOC. How did they miss them or did they see them and ignore them? How the hell could something like this happen? Well, you know, one thing I try to do on these and, and it's the same thing with the Sandusky case and, and even in some ways like something with Zach Smith or any of the others is, like just assuming that everybody at the school or everybody heard this is a horrible person, it just doesn't really do it justice. It's it's really like nobody at Michigan State's like, oh, I, Larry Nasser's uh, raping eleven year old. I don't care. It's like what what happens in a culture or what happens in the way we handle these situations and look at these situations that allow it to go down. Um, and and a lot of it is just the fear. I think there's a fear of, like, confronting what you're suspicious of. And I get it. Like, you might be suspicious that something's going on, but how do you accuse somebody of a crime that big? How do you say, I don't like that guy who monitors the playground at my kid's school? We don't have any proof. You just have a feeling. And, and I think a, the, these guys are masterful at, at working that. And Nasser was the best of them all, and mainly because as a doctor, he, he came with such credibility. And he could he could be alone with the kids, and he could he could physically touch them without it being, you know. Jerry Sandusky had to work to meet kids, and most of these guys have to do something to, to earn trust. And doctor, you just have it. You're like, okay, whatever you got there, doc. And and he had this great credibility. He's got pictures of him and Gabby Douglas on the wall, and him and and uh, you know all the gymnasts, all the champs. So these these kids are looking at it like, oh my god, what a doctor this is, and all of that. But. I think it's just a, a, a failure to communicate with each other at Michigan State, um, a failure at the school to take it as seriously as it needed. And really one guy, uh, the dean of the School of Orthopedics, really believed in Nasser and didn't take it at all seriously, Dean Stample, and he's himself facing charges. 
Um, the worst part was they put restrictions on Larry Nasser. At, I can't remember the exact year right now, but it was like 2015 or something, pretty late in the game still. But And he wasn't allowed to be alone with patients. He wasn't allowed to do this kind of controversial uh, therapy that he was claiming, which, which you know, put his hands in places it shouldn't have been, that he, that he was claiming was a medical thing. And yet, even though they put those restrictions on, they never told the nurses. It's like there's an embarrassment or a feeling like we have to protect the accused. Very thin line to walk. I, mean, I kind of can see it in both ways on that. But, man, is it, is it a huge mistake when this stuff goes down. And, and when you just let an accused pedophile operate on the honor system, well, if the nurse is in the office and the patients don't know you're not allowed, he's not allowed to be with a young girl, then he's just going to keep being with the young girls. And so you have these masterful criminals, and they exploit trust, and they exploit the little edges, and you end up with these kind of cases, and uh, it's, it's, it's pretty horrific. I mean, you had a lot of these victims really didn't know they were victims until the story started coming out, and they went, oh, my God, he did that to me, mm. now that I think back on it. And that's how, that's how I won't say good he was at it, but that's how proficient he was at it. So it's, it's I don't know, people smarter than me or spend more time on it than me need to really work at it. But I do think we do a disservice to trying to stop the next Larry Nasser, the next Jerry Sandusky, if you just sit there and say, oh, everyone in Michigan State's a horrible person. Like, well, there might be, but there's also a lot of people who just meant to do the right thing but didn't. And, and that's kind of what I always fear is those guys getting lumped in because not everyone would allow this. Mm. Quick timeout now to tell you all about ZipRecruiter before the rest of my conversation with Dan Wetzel. Listen, hiring is challenging, but there is one place that you can go where hiring is simple, it's fast, it's smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Rome. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it is no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Rome. Again, try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Rome. ZipRecruiter.com slash Rome, R-O-M-E. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now, Tiger and Phil, right? Tiger and Phil, the Cat V. Hefty pay-per-view. I got to ask you, are you setting aside your time and your money to watch this event? Well, I actually may cover it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Of all things. Although I may not now. Look, I liked this event. I liked it a lot until it was pay-per-view. Then I hated it. Um, I liked the idea of let's try something different in golf, maybe a different format, interest different people. Uh, the golf needs more fans. Everyone needs more fans. But um, I liked the idea of them miking it up. I liked that they could run some gimmicks. Um, you know, they're both sitting, sitting in a bunker. Hey, 100 bucks, who hits it close to the pin? The stuff you do on a golf course, right? Um, I just hate that they're going to try to charge people to watch. I, I just don't get the concept because 
They're trying to raise $9 million pot. The money is irrelevant to these guys. Now, I know $9 million is a ton of money, obviously, but not really to Tiger Woods. He's worth $730 million. He made 40-something last year. He didn't even win. Phil made 40-something. He won once, and he's worth like $400 million. Like, why, why is a million-dollar pot not enough and we all get to watch for free? Like the idea of asking the average person to chuck in twenty, twenty nine ninety nine, what fifty nine, I don't know what it's gonna be, just so a couple of guys who are gonna be billionaires get a few extra bucks just doesn't like that just just bothers me as just a concept. What I'd like to see is each guy say, I'm gonna put a million up myself and we're gonna play for it. And even if that million is from Nike or somebody like re- in reality it's not even their million. That would be cool. Or we're going to play for it. The pot's $2 million, but I'm going to give it to my charity of choice. So now Wounded Warriors gets it or the hardest, whatever it is. That's cool. Do a bunch of gimmicks. But when it's just a flat money grab on this, uh, you know, I just, I, I just don't get this pay-per-view content. It ruined the whole thing for me. And the optics are the worst. I mean, come on. It's like the most blatant cash grab ever. <laughs> I mean, golf, for the most part, to watch is free. Why would anybody pay for something as whack as this? And for them to sit back, Dan, and sit here like, yeah, we're just trying to bring new new viewers to the sport. We're trying to keep this thing fresh. We're trying- Come on, man. Stop with that shit. We're putting up the money. Well, if you're fortunate enough to do it. But do we look that stupid to you? It's like the most blatant, most blatant cash grab ever. I mean, what new viewer is going to put $25 now? Right. Like, okay, we're trying to attract 15-year-olds that might think this is cool. Great, they don't have $25. And, you know, and, and Tiger goes, well, I think people pay it. You know, I, I pay a lot of, like, UFC and boxing matches. This it's not that, though, right? Bout. Yeah, it's not that. That's not what that no, is. this is a garbage. This is like watching a guy spar. Like, you know, like, Conor McGregor, <laughs> it's his whole career. And he, and he might get destroyed. He might get left in a stretcher, you know? Like this is not you're a fool. This is a golf exhibition, not a, a combat sports. Like those guys, those guys need to see earn every penny. Every single one of them eventually leaves on a leaves on an ambulance. Like like I, I cover UFC all the time. This post fight press conference, like uh, Jones Smith and, and and Brown aren't here. They're all at the hospital. Uh, we <laughs> this guy. There's this one girl. The other girl went to the hospital too. So and so's in the you know. That's the press conference. We're missing half the half the card. Like those guys earn their fifty bucks. Like this is a. I mean, it's just so out of touch. I just, I loved it until this. It's just, I don't. I think they're so, they're so out of touch with reality that they just think people got you know, just kick in. I don't think anyone's going to buy it. So. I, I hope not. Listen, one more thought about that. You mentioned Conor McGregor. I know you followed this. Even when he was going up against Floyd Mayweather, look, the bottom line was, I mean, it was entertaining. Like, the lead-up, I would have paid 60 bucks, Dan, just to watch all the pressers and never mind the fight itself. Conor was that good. These two guys are corny as shit. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. Have you seen the tweeting back and forth between yeah, Phil and Tiger? I mean, come on. That's not worth 50 cents. All right? So, and you me- know they're interns or somebody at the management company writing the tweets. Like, I don't, I don't actually believe Tiger Woods tweets. No, like the TigerWoods.com, like you know, really, I'm not buying anything on that. I don't think he's actually tweeting that. And it's like, <laughs> well, okay, it's a winner take all. I mean, the loser doesn't get anything. Listen, the loser gets a weekend in Vegas 
And I think with both Phil and especially Tiger, we know that's probably going to go pretty well no matter what. Yeah, right. And let me it's not tell exactly going to be some, you know, I think they'll figure something out. Yeah, let me tell you something. Yeah. Phil, Tiger's going to roll him up, and you cannot tell me that Phil is stepping off a curb unless there's 50 grand, 100 grand, whatever it is underneath it. I guarantee it, that guy's not doing that for free. And then, to your point about Tiger not tweeting, let me ask you this. As a journal, the way you are, do you use social, be it Twitter or Instagram or something else, to try to connect with athletes and communicate that way? And here's why I ask you this. I don't do a lot of it, but I, I'd not be, I would not be honest if I didn't say that sometimes I'll try and reach out to a guy that I can't get access to through normal channels because we're both connected that way. I know for a fact there are certain athletes that I've talked to, like from direct message, that I know it's not them. I know for a fact it's not them. There's no <laughs> way this blue check guy is responding to me at this time of night in the middle of the week. I just know for a fact. What's your experience with that? You and I responded to me. Uh, occasionally, there's some guys um, – but only really is like off the record stuff or right. what's going on stuff. Um, even because it's, 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 you're right. Like, I, I don't think I've ever quoted anyone a direct message because how do I know it's them? And I don't even like text unless I absolutely know it's, it's their phone. Cause you can get, believe me, you as a journalist, you have to spend a lot of time these days figuring out, you know, like how am I getting conned on anything? I mean, there's been a lot of stories. I mean, there's been tons of stories on that stuff where these guys, oh, I thought I was talking to so-and-so, but it wasn't him. And they write some crazy story off of it, you know? I think there was one with, like, Ron Borges at the Herald. Like, yes. I thought he was talking to Don Yee, and he wasn't. Right. Like, some of the, these guys out there, man, they're sophisticated. They're sitting around trying to trick sports writers. <laughs> like, what? So, very, very dicey on who you're actually talking to. Like, sorry, give me a call. Um, and direct message would just be crazy because who the heck knows what's, who's got a hold of their Twitter account um, or whatever. But I do connect some with those guys, but I would not – I would not. Uh, first of all, T- Tiger Woods, I mean, he would never respond. So if no. he responded, I'd be floored. Exactly, and that's my point. Like some of these guys, <laughs> there's no way that the guy that I'm talking about, and I don't even want to say it, but the guy that I'm talking about, there's no way that guy would have responded to me, much less a half a dozen times with, yo, Rome, what's up? There's no, there's no way that it was that guy. All right, now I've mentioned this before. You are America's foremost authority on Bush Light. Reset yeah. this for those who do not know. When you're reaching for a pop, why is Bush Light the one you're reaching for? Why do you feel so strongly about those suds? I like macro brew. I'm a macro brew fan. Right. I like knowing that I like knowing I can knock a bunch of them back on Saturday night and still get up Sunday morning, no problem. Bush light, you got you know how many bush lights you'd have to drink to have a hangover? A lot. <laughs> right? Right. And you get on the elliptical for half an hour and it's taken care of. You sweat that right up. Um, I just like really cold uh, beer. And I like like an ice it. Like I ice it. I even have at times dabble with salting up the water. Don't just ice it. It's going to be ice water. You get the ice, then you put you put the beers in, then the ice. This drives me crazy. Guys, you don't know how to do this at a party. How many times you go to a party, okay, some guy's backyard, and you, there's the cooler, and you open up the cooler, and they put, like, three bags of ice in the bottom, and then they put the beers on top. Like, what the hell is that? That's not making the beers cold. Put the <laughs> beer in the bottom, then put the ice over it, then put water in there. Get it ice water. It'll take a long time for that ice to melt. It'll still be there in the morning. And then you get it. You can, if you really want to go hardcore, you salt up the water. 
makes it even colder. Wow. All right. So but then you got a salty thing, so it's not really worth it. But I like good crisp beer. I can drink them. Like I, I only drink like outdoor, like barbecues and like playing golf. Like you know, like a double IPA on the tenth hole. No way. Not what I want. So listen, I want a nice crisp one. So, right. So if you're a macro, if you're a macro beer guy, where do you come out on micro beer guy? Where do you come out on craft beer guy? I mean, do you leave them to their own devices, or do you have an issue with those guys too in that culture? I'm, I'm all right with them. It's that they hate me. Hmm. They get insulted that I don't want to drink their thing, and I don't. Re- you know, I get it. I'm not saying that I'm my beers taste better because they probably don't. It's just what I like, and so I'm a simple guy. I, I probably had a bush light when I was about 13 or 14 or something, and I just haven't changed my, my taste buds have not matured at all. <laughs> Great. All right, now, true or false, back in the day, to make ends meet, you attended Greektown Casino College in downtown Detroit, and you worked as a casino dealer. Is that true? That is true. Uh, Greektown Casino College was in a, uh, it was in a par- first floor of a parking garage in downtown Detroit, very scenic campus. Well, like Pepperdine. <laughs> right. Uh, just like Pepperdine. Just like Pepperdine. Yeah, I, uh, career was not really, you know, bringing in a lot of money at the time. So I needed a job. And I figured I could keep writing and be a casino. casino. They're opening these casinos. I live in Detroit. They're opening these casinos. So I was like, all right, you know, that's like a punch-in, punch-out kind of job. You can't, you're not going to bring anything home. And it could work midnight to eight in the morning, whatever you had to do. So I went to the, the they did call it Casino College, which was up to much amusement, <laughs> uh, even at the time. And we had a, and I, I, I learned blackjack and craps, like a deal both, but basically majored in blackjack and craps. We had a graduation ceremony. We actually got like diplomas or some kind of certificate. Who was the keynote speaker at that graduation? <laughs> I think it was, Senator McCain, I think, came in for that one. I don't wow. <laughs> the funniest day was <laughs> they, <laughs> the state of Michigan, when regulating the casinos, for some reason decided that all the, the dealers would have to be drug tested. Seriously. Right. Okay. Now, I don't, I don't take any drugs. I, haven't, I, haven't, I don't smoke. I, don't, I drink Bush Light, but the, that was not on the banned list. <laughs> So they come in and go, tomorrow we're all getting a drug test. Uh, okay, now I don't know who you think goes to casino college. <laughs> Nobody who would ever do drugs. My fellow students. <laughs> Did anybody show like, up other than you for the drug test? It was panic. It was. I'm like, how many cups am I going to have to fill? <laughs> Great. Guys are like, I heard if you shave your head, they can't get the hair, and then don't say it. I mean, it was the most ridiculous thing ever. I'm like, what do you think? What do you think is a potential dealer here right. at the Detroit casinos? Of course, there's people are smoking. I just don't like the smoker. I would be right in there with them. It was outrageous. So <laughs> that I, is awesome. Guys were buying. <laughs> it was a lot. It was like the it was like the Lance Armstrong Postal Service team was about as clean as the, <laughs> the graduating class. I don't know how how most of these guys passed it, but they did. Now, the only part about that story isn't quite true. I never, my casino was going to open. So I did deal at some parties. They had like some events. But then the casino got delayed uh, to open for some reason. And, uh, and then I got a job at CBS Sports. CBS Sports Line hired me. 
and I never actually dealt in a casino. So I'm kind of a casino dealer. I don't want to like, a get, dealer, just a dealer. I don't want to get Brian Williams on this later, but <laughs> I did. I did go to. The, <laughs> so I was, I was kind of a dealer, but I never actually dealt any cards inside a casino. So just just full full uh, disclosure. You're but uh, I was You're good. I, I remember not telling anybody for years that I did it because, like, especially back then, man, sports riding was all like, did you go to Northwestern and I don't know, like all this. I don't, they were full of themselves, so I was like, if anyone ever finds out I actually did this, like, I'll never get another job. And then finally I came clean. So. I think that's so awesome. Like, Northwestern, Syracuse, Missouri. <laughs> no, man, Greektown Casino College. <laughs> you should lead with that, especially now, given the career you're having. You should lead with that right now make sure they all know damn well all know. where you went to there school. There was, man. I was there. Because of that, because of the things we've talked about, because of the things that you've covered, because of the books that you've written, the screenplays you've written, I mean, you're, you're the top of the bunch for sure. As somebody who's seen the media landscape change drastically over the past decade and a half, I mean, normally I don't like this question, but what is the single biggest difference in how you do your job now as compared to, say, back in 2003 when you first started with Yahoo? Um... How different is the world now than back yeah, then? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like... Your world, our world. I'll say that we're far more in tune with what readers actually want to read about. I think that's probably the biggest difference is... And I'm sure you have that some ways because of the way your podcasts break down or your shows are broke. But I'm sure when you were doing your old shows, you would say, okay, I think this segment's going to work and you do a segment, but you didn't really know how many people were listening or not. And now I bet you have better data, but you don't have the data that we do. So I can tell this subject works, and X, you know, 1 million people read this story, 4 million people read this story, 40,000 read this story. And I know it drives fans crazy, but that's why you're getting the Cowboys and LeBron and Tom, you know, the same five subjects on ESPN all day. Because that's the one you're watching, and you can pretend like, you know, I really want to watch. A, I really want to read an in-depth feature on the backup center and his uh, and his uh, sick sister. It's like, okay, but then you really don't read it, and I, I hate that. But it is interesting to have that knowledge. So I do think we cater more to what the reader actually wants. Um, where I, I certainly back, I wasn't really doing it, you know back in the 80s, I was a writer in the 80s or early 90s or 70s, but those guys literally just wrote whatever the heck they wanted and it was in the paper. So a lot of it is, I think, being more in tune with the audience. Um, I still think the things that matter are really good storytelling, factually correct reporting, and really strong, strong commentary or takes that are based on reporting and really good perspective. That matters more than anything else. And, uh, and, and I think that's why, you know, I think that's why you've lasted so long, being able to do that. You put a lot more effort into it, and just you're on the air. And I think no matter how it changes, if you can do that, people will respond to really good reporting. But it's got to be about a subject that somehow catches them. Man, it's so true, isn't it? I mean, we do have different analytics. We have different metrics. We know what they're responding to. We know what they want to see. We know what they want to hear. So a final thought then, I mean, how are you personally – 
approaching the changing landscape? I mean, obviously, you make yourself available for shows and podcasts like this. You do your own podcast. You write outside of Yahoo. So is it a matter of doing as much as you can right now, or is it a matter of doing the right things? How are you approaching your work? It's definitely doing the right thing, I think. You know, I had a conversation once with Bill Simmons, and he told me, only do what you think you can be good at. And because they were trying, this was a long time ago, but they were trying to make him be like a talk radio host in Boston when he was first started out and he was very popular in Boston. And he's like, I'm not good at that. I can't do that. And everyone said, no, you can. Or they wanted him on around the horn. You, you'd be great at that. No, that's actually not what I'm good at. And I found that to be really interesting. And it's like, we're not all good at everything. You know, I can't do this, but I can do that. So figure out what you can do and then try to do it. And so, um, you know, Bill's had an incredible career, incredibly successful. And he's put together, you know, incredible, you know, 30 for 30 and, you know, inventing that and the website, all the stuff he's done. But he probably would have been like a half. He probably would have gotten bored doing talk radio and not been good at it. So it's like, and that's fine. And so what I try to do is either tell stories that really interest me or I'm good at telling. I can differentiate. Uh, and then tell them in all sorts of different manners. So whether it's, you know, a documentary or a book or, or through a series of columns or how we're doing different things, uh, I try to do what I'm good at and then not get involved with stuff that I probably wouldn't be good at. I don't think I would be very good on around the horn. Like I just sometimes things like, you know, who should be the Chargers quarterback this week? I just I don't know. I, I just sit there. I don't know. I don't care. But I'm better at, OK, I'm going to dig in on a murder trial. Yeah, I can do that. So I think you just try to find your thing and hope you stay employed. All right, so one last thing. You're working on one of the cooler projects that I've seen or heard of. Starting next spring, you're going to release a series of sports biographies written for the middle school reader. Now, these are bios that will be around 100 pages in length. They're designed to get middle school kids to read once again. I love that. I've got a 13-year-old. I've got a 17-year-old. I'm going to novel concept, put a book in front of them. It's an awesome idea. How and why did you come up with this? Well, it's like an old idea, right? We, I used to read them, um, and they always stuck with me. And my sister is actually a librarian in uh, East Hartford, Connecticut, at the middle school. And she was saying there's just they don't put out the sports books anymore. Um, and so there's kids that read, but it's a lot of science fiction. It's comic books. It's, you know, obviously things like Harry Potter and stuff like that, huge successes. But not every kid likes that stuff. And the, the, the sixth, seventh grader that's sort of like, hey, I just want to read about Steph Curry, or I want to read about LeBron, or I want to read about Tom Brady, or, we, you know, we're doing females too, Alex Morgan, Serena Williams, different stuff like that. There was a, a gap there. And so I really thought, you know, it's, a, it's also commercial. It's easier. I know as a parent, I buy more books for my kids than I buy. Like every, every kid books, every kid's room, a lot of kids rooms in America, not all of them, unfortunately, they all have books in them where a lot of the parents have no books. You know, they were, they bought one book last year, but they bought 40 for their kids or something like that. So I really felt there was this market and then really talking to a lot of, a lot of kids. I have a, a just started eighth grade and fifth grade. So I'm right in the middle of this. And, uh, we started working with McMillan, you know, and I've, I've got like a little focus group of, of boys and girls in this age group that read them and tell me what they think and what's interesting. Uh, and it's been good. It's been good so far. They don't come out till next spring, but 
really try to focus a lot, too, on what the players were like in middle school. You know, what was it like trying to make your seventh grade team? What was it like, um, you know, not being that good, not knowing? Uh, just all the different things. Alex Morgan was cut from a, a 13 when she tried out for travel soccer the first time at 13. She got cut. Well, a lot of us understand what it's like to get cut. Not many people understand, you know, so it, it, it humanizes them. Steph Curry, you're too small. You're always too small, right? Never be as good as your dad. This is the kind of stuff a lot of people hear. And there's more focus on that than necessarily how many points he scored in this game or, or anything like that. And it's been fun. And uh, the best thing I heard was like, one of my friends, uh, you know, I gave them to some of my friends and their kids, and like one of them had a sixth grade boy, and he's like, I went into there, he was dead silent in his room, and I'm like, what the heck's he doing in there? And I go in, and he's reading. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like they're I terrified. Can they can't hear anything. Yeah, why? what is going on? And he's like, I'm just reading, the, you gave me this thing to read. And uh, he's like, this is unbelievable, right? So hopefully it really connects with a lot of these kids, because I think it's, you know, kids, people want to read, They are, and they, they want just. They need something to want in the sports fans. Kids, kids can, kids haven't changed that much. Again, so, listen, I, I don't project. know. We'll see. Listen, I, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, certainly we didn't have the options growing up that the kids have right now, but I used to love sports books. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of connected to this guy, and I hate to age myself, but one of my favorite relationships is with Jerry Kramer because that was the first sports book that I read as a kid, and I was mesmerized. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. So the chance that I first got to meet him and interview him, I couldn't wait to tell him, hey, Jerry, by the way, I read your book as a kid. I thought it was the most amazing thing ever. Let me finally ask you this. The guys that you mentioned, you mentioned Brady, you mentioned Curry, you mentioned LeBron, Serena, I believe, is on your list. These are all really inspirational stories. Do we have to draw the line somewhere? I mean, can you write a kid's book about Tiger Woods? about MJ and some of the sordid stuff that went on there? How do you approach that part of it? Well, we're not going to do the Aaron Hernandez. Right. Straw there. And it's That's what I'm getting at, kind of. Probably not a Floyd Mayweather book coming. <laughs> right. uh, Tiger's an interesting one. I actually did talk about that. Um, I don't know. It's, it's tricky. I don't know what we would do there. we got to kind of see how they sell and what their feedback is uh, of what people want. I'll, I'll tell you, like, Serena was a little bit – challenging not anything serena did but like um her sister tragically was killed in a in a drive-by in, right. in, in compton a terribly sad part of her life and a, but a hugely important part of her life so okay how do how do you approach that as a writer because you're writing to 11 year olds 12 year olds so you got to mention it but how do you how do you do it and so there are some challenges where, you know, look, it's not all a fairy tale. But there's also a lot of people in this country that have to deal with that. You know, we don't shy away from, like, if there's a divorce in the family or, or struggles. Because that's, it's not just a fairy tale. It's a lot of, this is what America deals with. And, and we're not just this picture-perfect world, and we're not just this upper-middle-class world or anything like that. This is how it goes. So there are some challenges to that. I don't know about Tiger because it's it's tricky. I think we just have to be, we just have to. I don't know. There'd be a challenge there, but golf maybe isn't our top focus right now. We'll definitely do more soccer guys and things, but um, 
I don't know. That's It's a great question because it's one I don't have the answer to yet. I love it. I love the project. I love the idea behind it. And with kids that age, I know you understand. Hey, Dan, the bottom line is, you know, I do this. You you do a podcast. You understand what this is about. So I want to thank you very much for the time. Normally, we'll go about 30 minutes. You and I went almost an hour. I could wow. easily do another hour. I don't want to get greedy with it. But I really appreciate you. As you probably know, I've got a profound respect for what you've accomplished in your career, the way you go about your business. I just don't know too many guys and I say this not because you're here, but I, I just don't know very many guys, if any at all, that can do what you do, the way you can cover what you cover, go in a courtroom, come out of a courtroom, go sport to sport, man. It, it is not easy. So when you make the point that you need to know what you're good at and what you can do and what you can't do, you do shit that other people cannot do. And I want to say that. And I, I really do have a profound respect for what you've done and what you've accomplished. Well, it's, uh, super really appreciate that. And the respect's mutual. I'll, I'll buy you dinner for that. Um, you know, I, I've always respected the way you've done it too. Uh, the year, just the, the the daily quality of your show and the smart takes, and uh, and then I certainly have always appreciated um, the respect and just opportunities to I don't know promote writers and 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 not just me, but all the writers you put on there and sort of um, you know we don't always deserve a lot of respect as a profession. <laughs> Uh, I love I love sports writers. Uh, proud to be a sports writer. Have a lot of fun with sports writers, but we are who we are. But it's it's nice when somebody has always championed our cause um, because <laughs> there aren't a whole lot of people championing our cause. It's probably, probably like I said, probably for good reason. But um, thank you, thanks for having me on and saying that. And uh, I. Happy to talk to you anytime. You know that. Hey, Dan, one really quick thought, and I appreciate you saying that, too. You know, I had Stephen A. Smith on. I bring this up because, you know, he, like me, like you, like him. Hey, look, we're not everybody's cup of tea. We get this. We understand this when we do what we do. But Stephen and I had a really fascinating conversation because, damn, when I got started in the early 90s and I got my first TV break on ESPN2, back then, man, the print guys really wanted nothing at all to do with the electronic guys because they did not think that we were wired like for that. They didn't think we were journalistically sound. They just thought that we were guys, you know, with a head of hair and behind a microphone. My personal thing, and I bring this up because of what you said, I always liked the print guys. I always liked sports writers because they had the intel. They had the connections. They were well-sourced. They could tell stories. They could make our shows better. And I thought as long as they appreciated the process and didn't hate my guts that I was on TV, it would make sense. I've always, always wanted to talk to sports writers for that reason. Well, they're fun, they're fun to hang around with. I mean, it's nothing better after, I mean, you get you find them at the Marriott Lobby Bar mostly. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> it's a good time. Generally where you can find us. Uh, and they'll all accept free drinks. <laughs> but, yeah, the stories are great because all the stuff that never made print, especially the old-timers. Like, I mean, you sit down with, like, a Bob Ryan or something, like, or Dan Jenkins. Like, these stories are incredible. They're just, uh, you laugh all night long at all the stuff. And uh, I never was in that. I, I didn't. Maybe I just didn't come up. Or I, when you when your career includes stop at working at casino college, you, you really don't look down on anybody. Right. So I always liked the TV guys too. It never really bothered me. Those, I never got that. Stephen A. Though now he was a writer. He was a reporter. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. I first met him. He was covering Temple University. Temple. He covered John Cheney. I. That was a reality show. No one knew it should have been a reality show because there were none. Stephen A. Smith and John Cheney every day talking. I mean, I would kill to have the tapes of this conversation. Oh, for sure. For sure. Can you and imagine? Was, I that, mean, 
So Steve, and that's, but I think that's why Stephen A is so good. It's, I, you know, he's highly entertaining, and he's got the language and all of the stuff he does, right? He cracks me up, and he angers people. Other people love him, whatever it is. That's part of the gig. But he's a reporter still. He, he, he works to have information to base his opinion on. And I think that's why he's, he's been so successful at that. And so it, it, it's, it's part of that thing. You have to give people something they're not getting, some bit of information or some perspective that at least is based on some kind of smart thinking. And so that's sort of like what you do. Like, I'll tell you what, I almost never write about baseball. I don't watch baseball. I don't follow baseball. I'm not going to write about baseball because, you know what, it's not going to be a good take. I don't know. And so you just have to sometimes be that way and say, you know what, this isn't my thing. This, 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 I'm not good at that, but I can be good at this. Yeah, it doesn't matter because, I mean, you're right. You got to be, we all have to be painfully self-aware. And if that's not where you live, that's not where you live. And besides, it doesn't matter. That's what you have passion for. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Passion and Tim Brown do a million times better than me on that. And it's like, I'll have at it. Baseball bores me. It's okay. Usually the sport actually doesn't matter to me. I just like stories. Like I rarely even write about the sports. That's probably the biggest misconception of this job is people think, like, I, I don't know all the stats. I don't know all the players. I don't know everything. It's, it's the human part and the controversies and things like that. America's number one sport is controversy. And so, yeah, I'm laughing. controversy more preach. than anything else. Preach, preach. I get, Dan, I get this all the time, too. Like, hey, Rome, who's your favorite team? Who's your favorite athlete? I'm like, you don't understand. I have no dog in any fight. I do not root for any team. I don't root for any guy. I really don't. I only root for something to talk about because I've got three <laughs> hours every single day. My favorite team is not the Dodgers. It's not the Angels. My favorite team is team content. I have yep. to fill. You understand bad, that. Bad calls. Controversial right. reffing. That is always a winner. Exactly. You're at a game, you need a bad call to blow the game. Then you got something to write about. That's it. That's it. That's all we care about. Team content. Man, Dan, you are the best. I appreciate it so much. What a great time. That was outstanding. Thanks, Thank you very much, Dan. All right. Take care. Building professionals, I'm shouting out to you for a moment. Listen up. If you're a contractor or a builder or a remodeler, Lumber Liquidators Pro Plus is the only partner you're ever going to need for all your flooring needs. With special pro-only pricing and dedicated support, LL Pro Plus will help you get your flooring jobs done quickly and profitably. Are you worried about selection and availability? Don't be. Lumber Liquidators has over 150 million square feet of flooring available. Lumber Liquidators has over 150 million square feet of flooring available with over 100,000 square feet in stock at most of their stores. Plus, they stock professional grade adhesives, underlayment, mold, tools, fasteners, and grout so you can get exactly what you need when you have to have it. Are you too busy to pick up your flooring? That's not a problem either. The LL Pro Plus team will deliver it right to your job. And with LL Pro Plus, you can even get a business line of credit. So put the LL Pro Plus flooring experts on your team right now. Visit your local Lumber Liquidator store or go to LumberLiquidators.com slash ProSales today. LumberLiquidators.com slash pro sales. Let me tell you what that was. 
That was a podcaster's podcast. An entire hour with one of the best minds in sports going deep on a wide range of topics. So I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed doing it. Shout out to Dan Wetzel for his time and his insight. The next Bush Light is on me, my man. If you're new to this podcast and you're just now finding it, can you make sure to get subscribed so you do not miss any future episodes? Also, if you've got the time at the gym or on a flight or in the car or a long commute, you want to take a deep dive through the previous 47 episodes. They're all great, and there is sure to be a conversation or 10 that you're going to like. I'll be back next week with F49, and until then, you can catch me doing my daily radio program on CBS Sports Radio and CBS Sports Network. We're also on Sirius XM 206, and we're streaming live for free on the Radio.com app. If you don't mind, can you follow me on Twitter at Jim Rome and never miss an update? Appreciate you all very much. Thank you for listening. Now to the voicemails to finish out this episode, and I will see you all next week. First new message. Hey, Rome. It's Dylan in Lubbock. I ain't called in a while, but I got something to say tonight. I hate Joe Buck and Troy Aikman so bad. Mostly Joe Buck. Joe Buck sucks. He ruins. God, he ruins NFL games. God, I hate. I hate Joe Buck. Fuck Joe Buck. Message deleted. Next message. Just started listening to your podcast last week, and I got to tell you, I love it so much I made a song for you. And here's how it goes. Dun, dun, dun. I think I love you, love you, cause I want you, want you, cause I love you, love you. I hope you like it, Jim. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Rick in Buffalo, you fat fucking bastard. Message deleted. Next message. Steve from Gatlinburg here. I played your profile on Rick in Buffalo to my wife, and now she's a clone to the bone. So you've got another one listening with us. And uh, as a matter of fact, we go home at night and don't even turn on the television. We just sit and listen to the podcast or your daily jungle. Have a good day, my brother. Thanks. Message saved. Next message. What's up, Romy? It's time to do work. You don't have to worry, Jim. You'll never catch me making scummy mentions like Vic in L.A. with his disgusting Hank Gathers reference. Respect your elders, Vic. Jim, I'm not coming for a golden ticket. Not yet, at least. In the meantime, it's a grind with wheatgrass shots and early morning reps. Joe and Boise, over and out. Message saved. Next message. Hi, Jim. It's 11 p.m., and I'm officered, and I want you to call me back. Bye. Message saved. Next message. It was good calling the Rome Show. It was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. So good. It was good calling the Rome Show. It was good. Good, good, good. Message deleted. Next message. This is Dave from Lake Chelan. I'm a lifelong Seahawks fan and really appreciated your interview with Cliff Averill on your podcast. Hey, thanks again for your podcast. I've listened to all of them in sequence. They've introduced me to some new and important topics and even a couple of great movies in Icarus and Molly's Game. Thanks again, man. Message saved. Next message. Who? Who's doing a porno with the very gorgeous Sidney Crosby? Message saved. You have no more messages.